Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like kumquats, lotteries, and greed. Oh, I want to do greed, James. Oh, I want to do lotteries. <laughs> lotteries have always fascinated me. Do you know, I was, I was, um, I was thinking last night. I also want to do cheese. Okay, we haven't done cheese. I think we should definitely do cheese and meetings. I've got some brilliant stuff about <laughs> meetings. All <laughs> um, extraordinary stuff. Or we could do prunes, dunes, and spoons. Or <laughs> runes. Junes with a J and loons, um, which I think would send us in off in all sorts of directions. However, as always, this is to monstrously digress in ways that are generally unhelpful, uh, because we will be following in our minds as we come across them links that can be explained in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of sharks? Is in fact all about power and status in ancient China. It's also about Pompeii. It's about education, irrational fear. It's even about the Spanish Americas in the 16th century. Or that the history of puppets is all about totalitarian rule during World War Two. Mm, sharks is also all about the American Revolution. Don't never forget that. Watson and the Shark. <laughs> I love that episode on sharks. Um, uh, who is doing the speaking? Uh, let me introduce my fellow, uh, fellow presenter. If history was an ocean and humanity navigating it in a trawler, throwing their catches of historical achievements on deck to be sorted for posterity. This man would be the chief of the seagulls flying behind, picking up the scraps and observing with his beady eye before flying home to his study to write about all that he has seen. He is Professor Extraordinaire of... Uh, what are you, James? Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. That's me. That's more or less my description. <laughs> uh, and the man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown 3.0 in the United Kingdom. Well, let's just say that if he were a twitcher, if he were a historical ornithologist, he'd only be the historical equivalent of the supremely talented Bill Oddie. <laughs> genius. I thought you were going to call me Charles Darwin, but you've given no, called no, me no, the... not Charles Darwin. <laughs> Bill Oddie, who's a, who's a superb twitcher. Humorous, personable, energetic, funny, comic, wise, um, and one of the goodies. One of the goodies. Uh, it's, it's 
the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. Hello everyone, um, I enjoyed that very much. Uh, we are carrying on our wonderful history of birds, we've been inspired to do all sorts of wonderful things to carry on our research. Uh, episode one I talked about hats at Waterloo, I talked about uh, the terrible hunt for extinct species to decorate more hats in Manhattan in the 1880s, uh, James talked about canaries and all sorts of other things but we've got so much more that we've uncovered, we're back for another episode. James, where are you going to start? Well, Sam, I'm going to start with homing pigeons, which I promised uh, in the last episode and we didn't get to because I was so drawn by your examples of museum objects that I wanted to talk about the canary resuscitator. So if you haven't heard that episode, go back and and listen to it because it's fascinating. I wanted now to, to talk about the use of pigeons during World War One and World War Two, where carrier pigeons or racing pigeons, racing Homer breed of pigeons in particular, were used to carry secret messages uh, during the war. And would you believe that 32 of these kinds of racing pigeons who were employed in this manner uh, were actually medal winners hmm. during this period? They were given military medals for their contribution to the fighting um, and in particular they received something called the Dickin Medal uh, and the Dickin Medal uh, the PDSA Dickin Medal uh, was first instituted in 1943 in the United Kingdom by a woman called Maria Dickin uh, and what she wanted to do here was she wanted to create a medal that would honour uh, the range of work that was being done by all sorts of animals during the Second World War. Uh, it wasn't just pigeons, it was all sorts of other animals that were involved in this. Um, and there is a whole list of the 70-odd uh, recipients uh, of these medals, um, including um, Bing, the paradox. Um, who won uh, uh, a medal and is he's displayed at the Imperial War Museum in Duxford. Um, Winky, the pigeon, who on the 2nd of December 1943 delivered a message that contributed to the rescue of a ditched aircrew in February 1942. Bob, a dog, uh, a mongrel, uh, who on the 24th of March 1944 worked on patrol at Greenhill, North Africa, and served with the 6th Battalion, Queen's Own Royal West Kent Regiment. There was also a series of other dogs. Beauty, a dog, a wire-haired terrier, uh, who on the 12th of January 1945 assisted in the location of buried air raid victims. Um, there's, also, um, there's also another dog called Thorn, uh, this time an Alsatian, who on the 2nd of March 1945 located air raid casualties in a burning building. But also among all these canine heroes, there are a whole slew of pigeons who were carrying intelligence throughout the war. Uh, get this, March 1945, Kenley Lass, the first pigeon to deliver intelligence from an agent in enemy-occupied France in 1940, in October 1940, and served with the National Pigeon Service, which was set up to transport messages backwards and forwards. Navy Blue, a pigeon honoured in March 1945, uh, it was injured, uh, but also managed to fly with that injury and deliver a message from a raiding party in France 
in June 1944. But perhaps one of the most famous of these uh, message pigeons uh, during this period was a pigeon called William of Orange. Uh, and William of Orange won the Animal VC. So it won. It was awarded one of these, one of these, um, uh, these medals uh, for its involvement in Operation Market Garden, which I'm going to explain in a little bit. So these kind of pigeons have been were used throughout the war, and in fact, their history goes back into the ancient world as well. Um, you know, this is before we've got sort of um, the radio signals able to communicate. They were used on the battlefield as a, a means of communication when when one was unable to do anything else. There are 6th century records. Uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, used carrier pigeons in ancient Rome. Julius Caesar used pigeons to send messages to Gaul during the 19th century, during the Franco-Prussian War. Besieged Parisians used carrier pigeons as well. So this this sort of has a has a real sort of history. Um, but back to this pigeon William of Orange. I was I was I was drawn by this because of the name. Um, it's it's we're here at the um, at the Battle of Arnhem, uh, which is a battle during the Second World War that is renowned for its communications failures. Um, but none of this is to is is to sort of lay this at the door of the pigeons who had nothing to do with this and this one pigeon um pigeon ns15125 <laughs> great name the, the serial number <laughs> that it was given william of orange um continued under really extreme conditions and he was released from arnhem with a message fixed to his legs at 10:30 in the morning on the 19th of September 1944 and he arrived at his loft in England not that long later at 14.55. So that's what, four, four, and, a, four and a half hours uh, later, having flown over 250 miles from Arnhem uh, and the battle there back to England. And this was one of the few messages that made its way back uh, during this period, uh, and his efforts uh, meant that he was awarded the Dickin Medal, but it also saved hundreds of lives uh, during during this period. Now, so important were uh, pigeons throughout the First and Second World War uh, that there were attempts to punish the killing of pigeons. And there's a British World War I poster uh, that um, was produced under Regulation 21A of the Defence of the Realm Act, which, um, which warns people against the killing of war pigeons. Uh, shooting homing pigeons, killing wounded or molesting homing pigeons is punishable under the Defence of the Realm regulations by six months imprisonment or a £100 fine, and it offers a £5 reward will be paid by the National Homing Union for information leading to the conviction of any person shooting homing pigeons, the property of its members. So there we are. And then there are all sorts of technologies that are associated with this. Homing pigeons have... One of the things that's quite interesting about them is the way in which they carry these messages. And homing pigeons would be given um, 
they'd have little sort of um, little capsules uh, that would be tied to them uh, that were you, that would carry uh, the messengers the messages in, um, and they'd be delivered. Um, they'd they'd fly across and they'd land, and the the little capsule would be opened up. They would also fly with microfilmed messages. So you could basically do a microfilm of a message, tuck it in a little uh, one of these little sort of canisters, little capsules uh, that appear on the on the legs. And then you would have sort of dozens and dozens and dozens of um, of of messages that could be sent home. And it's estimated that during the Second World War, the United Kingdom alone used quarter of a million homing pigeons for all sorts of purposes including uh, communication and also spying and you know they were they were also said to carry sort of little cameras uh, that they could sort of take photographs of, of things so sort of be sort of little sort of reconnaissance uh, figures so there we are um, mm. the um, homing pigeon homing pigeon world war one and world war two yeah wonderful. Uh, and also uh, back into the ancient world I found out a little bit about this um uh, in terms of the the American kind of pigeon corps in the First World War in particular, and they got some remarkable stuff. They had mobile pigeon lofts, right? They had to design these, and once they realised they were going to use them for the war, they designed them and they used them as recruiting station. I'm looking at a picture of one now. It's like a it's like a um, a cart, so a four wheeled cart, something from the kind of the mid 19th century. It looks like with birds proudly displayed, not just because they're any birds, but because they are literally cat. German pigeons. So there was real pigeon warfare going on. And you could capture pigeons belonging to the enemy. And um, it's this whole mobile loft is being used as a recruitment uh, poster. There's a big thing on the front saying, learn to fly pigeons, join the pigeon section signal corps, USA. And that made me realise there was so much more to this as a historian. And there's all sorts of, uh, you could look at the architecture of these pigeon lofts. There's a great deal of... Um, material culture associated with it as well there's a special they had a carrier pigeon message book um, which has got a, a pad of paper to write the notes and then um, it all folds up neatly and there's also it, um, like little cartridges for you to put your message in the tube and attach it to the pigeon and there's a little string to attach it to the leg of the pigeon um, so they existed and they were a little portable um, birds cages where they were carried into battle on the back like a rucksack as well so there's there's a great deal of um of material culture associated with this as well james which i think would be worth looking at i'd enjoy doing that that'd be superb sam where are you going to take us now on your on your flight around the past a particular type of pigeon i became slightly obsessed with all of these dead birds in the royal albert memorial museum um, go back and listen to episode one if you want more on this uh, but they've got an example of something called a passenger pigeon um, and at one time, it was once one of the world's most abundant birds, lived in flocks of millions. They were hunted to extinction because they provided cheap food. The last one, called Martha, died at a Cincinnati Zoo in 1914. The specimen in the Royal Albert Memorial Museum comes from 1865. And I didn't believe they were the most abundant birds living in flocks of millions. I couldn't believe such a thing was at all possible. So I did a bit of work, James, and I, I found an account of someone coming across passenger pigeons for the first time. This is a guy called Peter Kalm, or Per Kalm. He's a Swedish explorer, botanist, naturalist. He's uh, writing in 1747. He's basically being commissioned by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences to travel to North America um, to bring back seeds and plants, things that would be useful for agriculture. 
But uh, actually, among the things he did, he's the first um, first scientist to be uh, uh, who managed to describe Niagara Falls. And his uh, the book he wrote is fantastic. So this is from Piercom's monograph, which was written when he was in America in um, the the middle of the 18th century. And he uh, manages to come across some of these passenger pigeons. And it's I'm going to read this out. It's truly brilliant. In North America, there is a species of wild pigeons, which, coming from the upper part of the country, visits Pennsylvania and others of the southern English settlements during some years, and in marvellous multitudes. The size of these pigeons is about that of a ring dove. Their long tail distinguishes them from other pigeons. The splendid colour which the male and the female have on the sides of the neck, and even a little beyond it, is also peculiar, in that the feathers in that region are as if covered with a finely resplendent copper, with a purple tint, which back of the neck shifts more into green, particularly with reference to its position towards the light. Rarely is this colour more finely reproduced than in this bird. In the spring of 1740, on the 11th, 12th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th and 22nd of March, but more especially on the 11th, there came from the north an incredible multitude of these pigeons to Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Their number, while in flight, extended three or four miles in length and more than one mile in breadth. They flew so closely together that the sky and the sun was obscured by them. The daylight became sensibly diminished by their shadow. The big as well as the little trees in the woods, sometimes covering a distance of seven English miles, became so filled with them that hardly a twig or a branch could be seen which they did not cover. On the thicker branches they had piled themselves up on one another's backs, quite about a yard high. When they alighted on the trees their weight was so heavy that not only big limbs and branches of the size of a man's thigh were broken off, but less firmly rooted trees broke down completely under the load. The ground below the trees where they'd spent the night was entirely covered with their dung, which lay in great heaps. As soon as they had devoured the acorns and other seeds which served them as food, and which generally lasted only for a day, they moved away to another place. The Swedes and others not only killed a great number with shotguns, but they also slew a great quantity with sticks, without any particular difficulty, Especially at night, they could have dispatched as many as their strength would have enabled them to accomplish, as the pigeons then made such a noise in the trees that they could not hear whether anything dangerous to them was going on, or whether there were people about. Several of the old men assured me that in the darkness they did not dare to walk beneath the trees where the pigeons were, because all through the night, owing to their numbers and corresponding weight, one thick and heavy branch after another broke asunder and fell down and this could easily have injured a man, being that had ventured below. About a week or a little after subsequent to the disappearance of this enormous multitude of pigeons from Pennsylvania and New Jersey, a sea captain by the name of Amis, who had just arrived at Philadelphia, and after him several other seafaring men stated that they had found localities out at sea where the water, to an extent of over three miles, was entirely covered by dead pigeons of this species. It was conjectured that the pigeons, whether owing to a storm, mist or snowfall, had been carried away to the sea, and then, on account of the darkness of the following night or from fatigue, had alighted on the water, and in that place and manner met their fate. Isn't that amazing, James? It really brings to life a, a different period in the past when something so extraordinary was happening in the sky. It's very sad as well, Sam. Very sad. 
Well, I'm going to take us in a in a different direction. I'm going to take us back in time, and I'm going to take us to the Viking Age. And we wrote about this in our little book on the unexpected history of the Vikings. Which, if you haven't bought it and read it and studied it in great detail, <laughs> uh, shame shame on you. But there are still plenty uh, in the world uh, for you to borrow from libraries um, or or otherwise, uh, not steal from from bookshops, but maybe purchase. Um, so Viking Viking culture it sort of simply flutters with birds. Birds abound everywhere. We can see this in the evidence of osteoarchaeology. In other words, the study of animal bones from archaeological sites, which shows us that birds were a common feature of Viking diet. We also know that in the area of navigation, uh, that that the flight of birds, knowledge of the flight of birds, distances. Uh, was used by people navigating uh, their ships. Um, we also know that exotic species of birds, such as peacocks, symbolised foreignness in Viking culture. We know that birds' feathers were used to stuff pillows, and we know all of this from the archaeological evidence. But alongside these practical considerations, these avian friends were fascinating flocks of mythological birds that you see throughout Viking culture. Um, we can see birds used as information gatherers throughout the, the sagas and the written evidence. And birds communicated with Vikings more than any other animal and were seen as wise. They were often figured as nature's purveyors of truth because they could fly. Um, this unique ability to transcend boundaries between earth and air really seems to have captured the Viking imagination. And two of the most famous birds in Norse legend were a pair of ravens called Hugin and Munin. Uh, these ravens were perched on the shoulders of the god Odin, and they flew all over the world gathering information for him. And their knowledge was a source of great power for him and has clear links with the Viking seafaring tradition, the idea of birds going out and, and looking for land. And among the many techniques that the Vikings used to establish their location at sea was to release these land-sighting birds, and here they favoured ravens to do this. And what would happen is the bird would fly up from the ship's deck and then would fly towards the land that it could see, or it would settle back down on the ship if none was visible. If you saw a bird flying towards land, then you would follow it. If, of course, it settled back down on the ship, then you certainly wouldn't follow it, and you, you knew that you weren't anywhere near land. Now, Odin's ravens feature in various famous Old Norse literary texts, including the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda, uh, and the third grammatical treatise, to, to just name three, which taken together reveal a very interesting picture of these avian information gatherers. And the birds were given speech by Odin, who himself is referred to as the raven god. Now, Snorri Sturluson in his Edda explains that two ravens sit on Odin's shoulders and into his ears they tell all the news they see or hear. Their names are Hugin, in other words, thought, and Munin, mind and memory. 
At sunrise he sends them off to fly throughout the world, and they return in time for the first meal. Thus he gathers knowledge about many things that are happening, and so people call him the Raven God. And in the poetic Edda he fears that they might not return to him. Hugin and Munin fly each day over the spacious earth. I fear for Hugin that he come not back, yet more anxious am I for Munin. Now his concern here is fully understandable, since these ravens were basically Odin's eyes and ears in the places that he couldn't actually be at, and therefore, in lots of ways, they are absolutely instrumental to his power. In other words, it's through them that he learns what's going on in the world, and his greater anxiety for Munin may suggest that the birds flew on separate missions, and on this occasion Munin's was perhaps more dangerous. Now a further clue to Odin's worry about his ravens comes in the passage from the third grammatical treatise, which relates that two ravens flew from Odin's shoulders, Hugin to the hanged and Munin to the slain, suggesting here the hazardous, the really dangerous nature of the journeys that they were taking. But one of the most striking depictions of Odin's ravens comes from something called Thorwald's Cross, which is a fragment of a stone cross found on the Isle of Man. And archaeologists think that it was possibly carved around the year 940. And it depicts Odin in a battle during the conflict of Ragnarok, uh, which in Viking mythology heralded the end of the world. And on one side, he's shown stabbing a wolf with his spear with one of his ravens on his shoulder. Now, through its association with Odin as information gatherer, as well as its practical seafaring use, the raven became a, a very important symbol for the Vikings, and the bird features in designs on armour, shields, helmets, coins and ships. So there we are, Sam. There's one example of Viking birds. We could go on to talk about Valhalla and birds that were connected to the Viking myth of Valhalla, the majestic hall in the Norse world of Asgard, which is ruled over by Odin, where the half of those who died in combat travelled to spend their time. Uh, the dead were guided there by Valkyries, these mythical female figures who instead should pass to the goddess Freya's field. Uh, Folkvangar, over which she rules. So we could talk about that. We could also talk about Blood Eagle, the Blood Eagle sacrifice, which is a sort of slightly mythical um, uh, sort of sacrifice. And I think we've talked about this uh, in previous podcasts, but but to sort of talk about it very briefly here, it's, it's, it's the idea that um, Vikings had this sort of ferocious way of splitting open their victims' back pulling out their lungs and spreading them eagle so that they looked like a sort of blood eagle sacrifice. The, 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 the evidence around this is really complicated and is often down to sort of readings and interpretations of particular uh, fragments. Um, 
but but nonetheless fascinating to sort of dig dig into. So there we are, Viking birds, Sam. Very good, huge enjoyable, guys. I hope you've enjoyed our special on birds. We have done very much. We've also got an extra little one coming up on falcons because we found so much about falcons. We're going to do an, an extra little episode, and there's an interview in that one as well. That's coming soon. Do please check uh, us out on social media. Let us know if you're enjoying it. Please leave a review on iTunes. That's really important to us, and we'd hugely appreciate it. Uh, and if you're interested in maritime and naval history do please follow the mariners mirror podcast that's my new project so you can follow sam on uh, twitter on at dr sam willis you can follow me on twitter at james dable you can follow the podcast at unexpected pod we are also on instagram we're also on facebook so friend us there and you can also check us out on our website historiesoftheunexpected.com to find out everything that we've been up to and because we are in lockdown we have resurrected our homeschooling history series. So we're trying to pump out as much material there uh, for kids who are homeschooling at the moment and and to help support teachers and parents and everyone. So check that out. Absolutely brilliant, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. <laughs>